Can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book? You know, novels are a special form of literature because they are capable of deadly serious psychological and philosophical explorations of the human predicament. And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading, everything becomes ephemeral and everything is forgotten very, very quickly. We know that the people who are leading are the good communicators and communication is mastery of language. The beauty about reading though, is it begins to chisel away at that stone that blocks the cave door. Welcome to Reading in the Common Good, a new podcast from the Trinity Forum, where we discuss the enriching and humanizing activity of reading deeply and well. We encourage you to put the ideas discussed in today's conversation into practice by hosting your own reading group. Check out ttf.org slash book club for help getting started. In today's episode, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder will speak with Matthew Lee Anderson and Anika Prather. Both Anika and Matthew have unique perspectives on what it means to confront a classic text, especially in the context of community, and what benefits that confrontation can produce. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation that was recorded in June of this year. You can find the full conversation with video on our website. Here's Cherie Harder. Our topic today might seem a bit surprising or even counterintuitive. We tend to think of reading often as a solitary act. It's one that might beckon us to new worlds of imagination or partake in an ongoing conversation with authors from different lands or time. But particularly as adults, we tend to assume that that journey uh, is a solo one. But there's actually a great deal of evidence to suggest that reading in community offers possibilities, benefits, and joys even beyond those of reading in solitude, including enhanced comprehension, increased memory, greater enjoyment, and a much deeper sense of relationship and belonging. And since thinking itself is a deeply relational act, reading timeless works of great literature with others both broadens and deepens our own capacity to understand, interpret, and appreciate both a text content and characters and the content of our own character as well as that of our neighbor. And for those of us who worship the word, it invites us into new ways of knowing and loving our neighbor. It's an intriguing and exciting summons. And I'm so pleased to get to introduce our guest today to scholars and educators who have, in their very different ways, pioneered wonderfully visionary and creative approaches to reading in and for community. Matthew Lee Anderson is a professor of ethics and theology at Baylor University's Institute for the Studies of Religion and the associate director of Baylor in Washington, as well as an associate fellow at the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life at Oxford University. He's the founder of the web magazine, Mere Orthodoxy, the author of Earthen Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith, and The End of Our Exploring, and has written widely for publications including the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and many others. But he is also the founder and creator of 100 Days of Dante, 
the world's largest online reading group for the Divine Comedy, presented by Baylor University Honors College with support from at least five other universities, which has hosted a communal reading group of many thousands that met for 100 days starting this fall and commencing with Easter. Joining him is Dr. Anika Prather. Dr. Prather is an educator who served as a teacher, teacher supervisor, director of education, and head of school. She currently teaches classics at Howard University and is the founder of the Living Water School, a very unique classical school for independent learners. She's earned numerous graduate degrees in education, but maintains a research and practice focus on building literacy with African-American students through engagement with the books of the canon, which she articulates beautifully in her recently published work, Living in the Constellation of the Canon, the lived experiences of African-American students reading great books literature. Matt and Aniko, welcome. It's great to have you both here. So, Matt, I want to start with you. What led you to start the world's largest Dante reading group of all of one's life uh, ambitions? This is an unusual one. And what did you hope to accomplish by facilitating a large communal reading of this classic rather than just encouraging people to read it on their own? Yeah, it was a crime of opportunity. It's certainly not the sort of thing that I ever imagined I would do when I was growing up. Um, and in fact, you know, Dante is a new love for me. I'm, I'm a Shakespeare guy. If I had to choose one, it would have been Shakespeare. But I was teaching in the Honors College here at Baylor, and I taught uh, with undergraduates all the way through the Divine Comedy. And it was such a phenomenal experience with my students. They, they resonated with the story in such a deep and profound way. Dante starts off the journey He's lost in a dark wood. Uh, Virgil comes along, helps him get unlost, but he's got to go down through hell in order to encounter all the sins along the way and become the sort of person who's capable of then climbing Mount Purgatory and then ascending to see the face of God. It's this extraordinary journey that he goes on. And students really resonated with it. And I thought that there was an opportunity to do something that would help others engage with the story like my students experienced it. It just so happened that as I was thinking about this, I saw a, a tweet in which Pope Francis encouraged people to read the Divine Comedy because it was the 750th anniversary of Dante's death. So it seemed like the right time to put together this sort of reading. So, you know, we compiled 100 videos from teachers from across the country and released them three times a week between September and Easter of this year and had, you know, some 15,000 people sign up to participate in this. And of course, not everyone finished. You know, it's a hard journey. We, we had probably about 3,000 people make it with us to the end. But it was just a phenomenal experience for people who did it. It was, it was a terrific resource that we had a great time putting together. Uh, Anika, I want to ask you, you are a real pioneer in the uh, the realm of uh, basically sort of research on as well as the practice of the lived experience of African-American students in reading great books literature. And I'm sure you get this all the time, but there are many people who think, well, not only is, is this literature clearly not representative of the students reading it, but inaccessible, potentially even oppressive. So I'd love to hear from you why you lead your students through great books uh, and how they respond by reading these books with each other. The most important thing for me to do to to be successful at that was to first show it that it's relevant. And the easiest way for me to do that was to first 
see that it is it was relevant throughout Black history. It is an integral part of Black history. I started this journey, though, not realizing that. I started this journey. I had graduated from John's, uh, St. John's College. My I was working in my parents' classical school. None of us really understood that it was a part of Black history. But we recognized that, and I think my parents appreciated it because they read the canon when they were growing up in uh, segregated schools. And so they had an appreciation for it that was just kind of natural. You just need to read this book. They didn't really have a philosophy behind it, but you're going to read Shakespeare. You're going to read C.S. Lewis. And it was really, but why, mommy? You're just going to read it. And so there was not a philosophy. So they created a school recognizing what this literature did for them, but not being able to really maybe articulate if the theory or the philosophy behind or why this is important. I think after my second year at St. John, I mean, at, yeah, St. John's and my second year of teaching the great books class, where I would often use the arts to help the students in engage, um, I just accidentally found an essay by Du Bois called Of the Training of Black Men. And at the end of the essay, this is the one where he says, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, you know, and he says, arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, we glide in gilded halls. And then he says something like, you know, and they all come graciously with no scorn or condescension. And when I read that one line, they all come graciously with no scorn or condescension. A lot of times people read that passage and they think he's talking about, oh, you know, we I can read the canon. I'm just as smart or smarter than you. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, do you not want us to feel this unity where we can all dance together in this ballroom because we're engaged with these thinkers of the past? For some reason, finding that essay made me think there's more like him somewhere. It just kind of, I would say, was the Lord. You know, he made me feel that by reading that passage for him. And then I looked at, and that made me look at the rest of the essays in Souls of Black Folk. And he is making a case throughout that book that this is the best education for Black people. That wasn't just that one essay. And I found a whole book of the education, I think the education of Black people, another collection of his education essays where he's saying the same thing. And I'm thinking, if he's going through all of this to say, this is important, and our people need to read this, there's something else missing. So I went on kind of like this Indiana Jones journey to discover. I literally ended up going through an abandoned school that was founded by Nanny Helen Burrow with like, it was abandoned. And I found her class list, Nanny Helen Burrow's cast list. And one of the classes her class students had to take was Latin. So there's this journey I discovered. And then I discovered Frederick Douglass and it just Martin Luther King. And then before long, it was like, whoa, all of my ancestors are reading this stuff. And many of them were activists. They weren't oppressed. They weren't allowing themselves to be oppressed. They were freedom fighters. They weren't trying to assimilate. They were surviving, but they definitely used it to feed their activism. Once I uncovered that, I began to teach it that way to my students. And that is what revolutionized my teaching. It empowered them to know, ooh, Martin Luther King read this. Ooh, Black Panthers read this. You know, all types of Black activists read these works and found liberation and fire to fight the good fight. And so they then kind of internalized that sense of purpose and, and began to value it, which also allowed them to then value it just simply because... But I had to start with their history first. Now, both of you are educators. And so I'd like to ask both of you, and we'll start with you, Matt. Uh, you chose difficult works 
you know, challenging works, but you also are doing this with others in community where this is not just a solo assignment. Uh, people are kind of reading collectively. What changes educationally with the experience of reading in community rather than reading as a solitary act? Yeah, I think a lot changes. In the City of God, Augustine talks about the way in which commonwealths are formed. And one way in which a commonwealth of people is formed is through a common object of love. When a group of people have something that they love that they share. And what happens when you gather around a text is you have something in common. And it doesn't matter what other differences are in the room. Yeah. Like text is there and it's a it's a meeting ground for everyone's yes. different perspectives. And as you talk together, your love for the text is intensified by other people's participation in it, yeah. by the way in which they read it, by the differences that you have, by the questions that they bring to the table that you didn't see together, you intensify your love. And in um, Reflections on the Psalm, C.S. Lewis talks about praise and how praise is the consummation of what you appreciate. Like if you go see a good movie, you feel this impulse to go tell someone about it. And I think that's right. But I think you could go a step farther and say what magnifies the delight even more is when you praise something and the person that you praise it to understands your praise and deepens it and returns it back to you. And when you have a community who reads a text, who sees something in it, who loves it together, like your praise and your delight and your enjoyment is magnified. It just grows and grows. So I think that's one of the central things that happens. I, just very briefly, I think one of the other things that happens is you just get like endurance. Like you get a reason to keep going through hard text. So many people who participated in 100 Days of Dante said that the reason they did it was because they had always wanted to read this text, but it was hard. It was foreign. They didn't know where to start. And there's something about reading it with other people that supplies just a reason to keep going because you might not experience something in the text, but you know, you've got a book club that you've got to go to on Thursday night. You've got to say something. And if not, you know, like it's going to be a very dull book club. And so that sort of social pressure actually helps people gain the kind of endurance that they need to, to read things that are difficult that they wouldn't necessarily read otherwise. A few years ago, I quit Netflix. Um, and I quit streaming television in my home. I just said no more movies, no more television in my home because I wanted to read more. That was one of the main mm. motivations. Mm. And one of the reasons why I did that was because it seemed to me that many of the shows that had once marked the cultural landscape in America were being forgotten very, very quickly. Lost is, you know, the last show that was on network television, not HBO or something like that, that probably had widespread cultural yeah. salience or cachet. And I like the students that I teach in college have no clue what lost is. They don't care at all. And no one in public discourse, it just doesn't matter. It's so ephemeral. And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading Ooh. is everything becomes ephemeral and everything is forgotten very, very quickly. And that has knock-on effects on our public discourse, on, yes. I think, contributes to a, a certain sort of polarization. Yes. Um, but I think what I'm concerned about is it has really substantive effects on our souls, that there's a kind of shallowness and a hollowing out 
of our persons that goes along with that. There's, there's a unique cognitive burden that comes with sitting down and reading a book that's 350 pages. I love like serialized television. I get its appeals. It's very attractive, but reading you know, I'm, I've been spending the last three years reading Trollope like a maniac. You know, reading a Trollope novel is a different type of cognitive experience. And it's the sort of cognitive experience that is demanding in a way in which screens, TVs, etc. are not demanding. And I think that there's, there's hopefully a kind of depth that comes with that and a, a culture sense of memory that you lose if you don't have a culture of reading it's to me this is one of the gravest social crises that we have and we we need more than anything real practices of resistance real communities who are going to read together to keep alive intellectual habits that will be lost otherwise and to resist the kind of social fragmentation and decay that come with the loss of those habits. Can I connect to what he's just saying when he talked about that common ground? It made me think of the canon because our, all of our ancestors have read the works of the canon. And this, there's a pattern that I see in, a, in many of the African-American or Black um, activists, authors, influencers, history makers, one thing I see that's very common, Martin Luther King will be a prime example, I'll say, Frederick Douglass too, is when they read it, they didn't read it. There are some who did this, but they didn't read it to say, I'm smarter than you and I'm better than you and I'm separating myself from you and I don't need you. Many of them read it and wanted to build a bridge to those who used to oppress them or at one time oppress them. There was this activism that involved a creation of unity. So the, the, the one who created I Have a Dream says the canon influenced the work of the civil rights movement. Frederick Douglass did not run off to Canada and live happily ever after. He remains here in the United States and partners with people who do not look like him, who also were reading the canon to, to fight this fight of not just ending slavery and oppression, but also bringing healing and unity amongst the races. And there's a quote by James Baldwin that really connects with what I'm saying, that he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who had ever been alive. And the canon has served that for humanity throughout the centuries. That's beautiful. I think as well. And to that point that in our reading, this, we're all fans of the canon, that we are reading the diverse voices who also read the canon. That's another really yeah. key point. And, 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 and we can even venture to say that when we go back to reading well, those who did use, because that, that does exist, there are people who have used the canon, the Bible, for oppressive means. That is there. But that was not what was necessarily in the text itself. Even, even assuming that, oh, um, I, I think I even heard a scholar say, no one else besides these authors have really written anything that have really touched humanity, you know? And so... It's important to read Gandhi. It's important to read MLK and James Baldwin and Du Bois and Douglas and 
honestly, Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's really important to read these people who have read the canon because they have something to say that does offer another worldview. Because if we don't include these, this is this is the beauty of the canon. Everyone has read them. That, that is what allows the world to see that these books are not just for one group of people and invites more people to the conversation. I want to ask just real briefly what each of you see as the future of communal reading. Um, you both have pioneered sort of a fresh expression of that. What hope do you see for the future of reading in community? Matt, maybe we can start with you. I, I see hope in Anika's school and in the Baylor University Honors College and in the Trinity Forum, right? Like in one sense, the future of reading is the same as the past of reading. It's just more intense and more amplified and there's more intentionality around it because if you're not intentional about it, all of the cultural pressures will eliminate reading from your life. And so organizations like the Trinity Forum that do book clubs and that provide guides and that help people read more are un unbelievably essential for creating communities that do resist. So I, I like, Sheree didn't ask me to say that, but it's genuinely the truth. Um, and so like those sort of organizations, schools like Anika's, they need genuine support and resources yes. to Lord do Jesus. more and good work to yep. form people to read well. It's, it's yep. absolutely imperative. I mean, and then that's, I, I think you're expressing my heart. I think that's what my passion is, is um, encouraging those who would normally have the invitation to read well, yeah. to join the conversation. I'm not interested in a segregated experience. I, I am interested in inviting everyone to this space where all shades of people are reading well together and I'm inviting it, you know, and, and I'm inviting everyone to that conversation. And it is imperative that we all do that. Um, and I, I really feel uh, my journey also began when my husband was teasing me. I was telling him my frustration about the, just the racial tension we see around us. And years ago I said, you know, I think we could just solve all of this. If we all just sat together and read a great book together. And at the time he said, really sweetie. And he's, he's an engineer. <laughs> he's a reader too. We both are love to read together and, and he writes poetry and everything, but he just thought that didn't make sense. He said, now I'm starting to kind of think you're right now. That was, you know, now he's starting to feel that way. It seems very simple to me. You know, we're doing so much of watching the news and trying to digest and articulate what everybody, every newscaster is saying and every social media post is saying, where if we all just picked up a book of those who've lived this before and talked about our experiences and got to know each other from that place of grace, we could accomplish so much together. But it can only work if those who are doing it are diverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So our next question comes from Jasmine Ganter, and Jasmine asks, can you speak to the microcosm of family as a testing ground for reading in community? Uh, Matt, I'll toss that one to you. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, one of the things that was most delightful to us who ran 100 Days of Dante on our team was seeing the Instagram posts of families reading Dante together. You know, obviously it's not age appropriate for everyone, but we had a lot of families with eight, nine, 10 year olds who were working their way through 
the divine comedy with their parents and experiencing it. And it was delightful to see. I mean, the there's there's a again, it's a it's a kind of commonality, right? There's a common experience that a text provides for a people. And a family who reads together has something in common that goes beyond their shared history as this particular people, right? Like as, you know, we descended from our grandparents and our great grandparents, all that's very important. But what a book in common does is it actually expands the horizon beyond the family itself. And it introduces other types of experiences, other types of perspectives in a mediated way into the family. And it allows the family to incorporate those other types of experiences into its own common living and understanding of the world. And so I think reading together as a family is just massively important. Um, I also think like reading scripture together as a family is, um, you know, there's, there's, if you want commonality and if you want a deep understanding of the world that we lived in, that we live in now, it's impossible without scripture uh, and without a deep understanding of the text. And, uh, you know, doing that as a family and having that be a pervasive part of your culture, not so that everyone can sort of go around and judge each other by throwing the latest, you know, the Bible verse of the day at each other, which is yes. not a happy family experience. But so you have a, a common language, a common discourse, and one which is saturated with the, the yes. word of God, I think is yes. actually a really valuable thing to do yes. as a family. Yes. So I want to combine two questions for our final question, which I'll uh, ask both of you to tackle. Maybe we'll start with you, Anika. Uh, Linda Boast asks, is reading well synonymous with reading closely? And relatedly, an anonymous viewer, can you speak to how someone becomes a good reader? It's a hard question to answer because it can almost feel very nebulous and it doesn't have a, a set formula. So I think, let me, let, me, let me do the first part, reading closely and reading well. I think you can, I think if you're not asking questions, you can do one without the other. Like if you're just reading closely, meaning you're reading it to yourself and you're seeing how it connects to your life and what it all means to you, you can, I think you can do that reading closely. I think reading well, though, involves the questioning and the engagement. I feel like that is a piece of it. And I think it does connect what we were just talking about, reading with family, reading in community, reading the word together. I grew up reading the word with my mom and dad. We had to read scripture before we came down for breakfast. And my mom, my dad, my brother and I would sit around the table and talk about what is this saying to me and ask questions. And we still do that today as a family. Um, And so it's that engagement and that sense of community. And so it's not just connecting it to yourself and finding enjoying it on yourself kind of uh, in a vacuum, but it is asking questions and talking to someone else about it and, and being able to articulate that um, with each other um, back and forth. So, and, and how that is taught again, I know I sound like a broken record is Socratic dialogue. I mean, the seminar model is just such an exercise of, reading well and and training children and students and adults how to read well is engaging in that back and forth, that Socratic dialogue with each other. 
Yeah, those are great questions. So I think I'm going to say no, that reading well doesn't require, always require reading closely. It certainly does in some contexts, but there are other contexts where reading well just means reading. I, um, you know, I read probably at least 20 minutes. Sometimes it goes up to 40 every night before I go to bed. And, you know, I'm just lying in bed. I've got my little book light going and I'm, I'm reading away. And at that particular juncture of my life, I do not want to be thinking. Thinking is the thing that I'm opposed to. And so like reading P.G. Wodehouse, the early 20th century British writer is the perfect palate cleanser for a day because there's, you can't have a deep thought reading P.G. Wodehouse. It's just, it's against the grain of the whole experience. Um, and so I'm, I'm reading it literally to turn my mind off um, and to have a few good laughs. And it's been terrific for mental health purposes. I've, I've uh, given this out to many people who have struggled uh, with mental health because it's just a great reading experience. Now, that's a particular type of reading. I think one of the things that I want to do is lower the pressure or the sense of anxiety about being a good, good reader and say it's more important to be just become a reader first. And so blocking out distractions, carving out time for it, um, saying no to other forms of entertainment and taking up books as a part of one's life is much more important as a first step to become a good reader. The other thing I'd say is that you really do have to balance your enjoyment and the challenges that you're willing to take on. At some points, it's important to read for enjoyment, like P.G. Wodehouse. At other points, you got to challenge yourself because the only way in which you're going to become a good reader is by reading things that you're not good at reading when you start. It's like music. The only way you're going to become good at listening to music is by hearing some things and thinking, I just didn't understand that. Like, did also didn't appreciate it, didn't enjoy it, but definitely didn't understand it. And those sorts of moments, yeah. if you can find yourself having that sort of experience, feeling a little lost with a text, that's actually a great experience. Yes. Because what that will do is it will prompt you to get yourself a little unlost. You might go look up someone who could help to find a guide, find a Virgil who will come and show you the way. And as you do that, you'll grow in your appreciation for that particular text and your capacity to be a good reader in general will go up. So I think having experiences where you feel lost and overwhelmed and where you don't like text is really important. Like the Brothers Karamazov is a great test case for your reading. If you if you make it through Father Zosima's really long, really, really long speech, in the first third of the book, right? You will have a transformative experience, but the number of people who quit the Brothers Karamazov 200 pages in because they get bogged down in this super long speech on love is just enormous. So take that up as a, as a good litmus test for a challenging book to get through. I think that's one of my challenges with what you're saying is getting students, young and old, to be that conscious to me that's yeah. that's that's some good reading when you can acknowledge i don't understand this because i've i i have met students who they they're given the reading assignment they say i read it i'm finished but they can't tell you what they read they can't give you an opinion on it they don't even they can't even come up with a question but somehow they're thinking because they sat and looked at the words and decoded some words that they have read 
Yeah. I, I like what you said there, because even mm-hmm. teaching students to be just conscious of what they're reading and how they feel about it is is also people would be surprised yeah. that that's that's some good reading to me because you're being conscious as opposed to just drudging through it just to say you read it or yeah. to say, oh, I read that book and you don't even know what it means, because sometimes people are in reading competitions. They like Mm-hmm. They like saying, I, I love to read. I, I'm reading this book and they sit there with their book and it's all big and thick and they're reading. And if you ask them questions or try to engage, they can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but the consciousness that happens in reading, whether it's for entertainment or not, too, is just is something I really want to try to inspire in students. Well, uh, not to put too much of a downer on it, but I, I thought about one dangerous communal reading experience from the Divine Comedy in Canto Five of the Inferno. Paolo and Francesca, in one of the most famous scenes, uh, describe how they read together the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. And uh, as the text says, at the moment when... Uh, 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 Lancelot quist, kissed Guinevere. They looked at each other and they read no more that day, which is a delightful moment in the Divine Comedy, but it's also a caution about mm. being together and the types of explosive, dangerous things that texts can do to us and for us. And so I think it's, it's uh, an extraordinary adventure learning, but it's also a dangerous one. And it's one that needs to be undertaken with great caution and wisdom. And which is why we need organizations, again, not a like forced plug, like the Trinity Forum to help guide us through the world of reading and text. Thanks, Matt. Anika, Matt, this has been a real delight. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sri. Thank you. Each of you for joining us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading and the Common Good, a podcast from the Trinity Forum. And don't forget to check out ttf.org slash book club to find everything you need to start your own reading group.